Welcome back to Tech Talk. I'm Ken Mingus, Executive Editor at Computer World. I'm here today with InfoWorld's Sardar Yagelyelp to talk about AI and machine learning and uh, whether that's a good thing, whether what's going on in the uh, field is uh, good for us or bad for us. Uh, we're picking up basically on a conversation we had earlier this year. If you're watching us on uh, YouTube, we're streaming live. We're also streaming live on the Computer World LinkedIn Live page. So if you've got questions or comments for us, uh, especially that we might be able to answer while we've got Sirdar on the air here, uh, please leave them in the comments and we'll try to get to them uh, before he has to go. So Sirdar, thanks for being here again. I hope I didn't mangle oh, your name too badly. Not too badly. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here. Sorry about that. Um, you know, the AI ML machine learning conversation we had earlier this year really covered a lot of ground. So we thought it made sense to check back with you and see how, how things have advanced because it, it, it really does seem like in this particular area, uh, things move very quickly. Oh, they do. And there are two areas, I think, where there have been significant advancements just in the, in the last time we talked. The first is technical and the second is social. Um, on the technical side, um, there's been a great deal of innovation in terms of making machine learning something that can be deployed and revised and uh, extra having predictions extracted from it in a, in a much easier way. There, there's, there's now a much better tool set than there used to be. Once upon a time, if you wanted to deploy machine learning in an organization, you had to put it together yourself completely from scratch. And now you have tool sets that allow you to deploy um, a much more complete solution. All you need to do is provide the data and the training. And there's a lot less manual lifting involved. So. It's become easier to set it up. It's become easier to get insights from it. And it's also become much easier for someone just with a personal computer to start working with it by way of uh, languages like Python and frameworks like TensorFlow, um, which let you just start working uh, directly in a notebook right on your PC without having to set up anything big in the cloud. And you can plug right into one of the many commonly available data sets and just get your hands dirty. Um, so it's become very democratized in that respect. And, the, the technology is easier to get your hands on than it ever has been. The downside of that is that it also becomes easy to create things that are potentially thoughtless. And this is this has been one of the parts of AI that, that people have been talking about for some time, but the conversation has really started to come to a head. It's very easy to create systems that have negative social impact without even realizing it. Um, the most obvious examples you know, that we know from the headlines, for instance, we've got a self-driving car that doesn't recognize a pedestrian. But it doesn't have to be anything that huge. Sometimes it's something that only comes out after a long period of time because of some corner case in, in the data set that only gets revealed in some, some crazy real world circumstance. Um, one of the things that, uh, I, that came to mind most recently in this respect was things like facial recognition. You know, obviously there's a lot of concern about facial recognition um, and the regulation of it, you know, that it's, so that it's not used to abuse privacy. Um, but it's also bad because if your if your facial recognition training set uses people with entirely light-colored skin, for instance, yep. and some of the dark-colored skin comes on camera and throws the whole thing off, um, you know that's that's an extension of a social problem into a technical area. And so there's a greater awareness of how these social problems of how existing social conditions just get perpetuated or exacerbated by the technology, even when we're trying to use it to do socially positive things. Yeah, I, I wonder, So I'm glad that there's more talk about it, but it's, a, it's harder to translate that talk into real action without, without a lot of work. Right. I was just going to ask, I wonder if this is another situation where we've got technology that is, you know, again, it's moving very quickly. There are a lot of ramifications in how it might be used or misused, and there seems to be no way to sort of 
uh, impose any kind of regulations or maybe just slow things down just a little bit to make sure that, you know, the, the either intended or unintended bad consequences of poorly written or intentionally, you know, badly written code, um, you know, make themselves evident. Should, should we be slowing down here or is it, do we want to depend on the marketplace and the social good to try to make sure that, uh, uh, you know, this, this stuff is rolled out properly? Well, one thing I think we can do, and I, I don't even think this should be a terribly controversial uh, controversial point, is to have strong rules within government procurement, for instance, about how these technologies are used in the public sphere. I think that's one of the few things that we can do that would that would be, you know, the 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 least problematic top-down solution I can think of. I'm not talking about banning it entirely, but rather things like restricting the use of it um, for policing in ways that would be you know highly disruptive part of the problem is that there's so many unintended consequences there was a piece in the news recently about the ring doorbell system and about how local police were uh, harvesting data from uh, these doorbell systems to be used um, in ways that were not necessarily intended by either their creators or their users so things like that could be you know codified into law that these sorts of things should not be done as for the innovation itself, I don't think there's any way to slow it down by saying, don't do that. Mm-hmm. What, there, what you can do, though, is create a culture of care and thought about how these things are to be made into a product, about, about what problem you're really trying to solve. And by having a culture of open conversation, especially between people um, you know, who are, are trying to make a name for themselves by building a great product, you know, if they talk amongst themselves and say, listen, you know, what are we really trying to accomplish here? Are we... Are we are we trying to solve one problem or are we creating five more? And if there's a, there's a greater awareness of how these things don't necessarily solve the problem that you're trying to think of among the people building these solutions, I think that's a step in the right direction. And that, that, is, that is one of the few things that you can do at that level is foster, foster culture of awareness of consequences. Okay. Uh, just a reminder, if you're just now tuning in, we're talking to Sirdar from InfoWorld about AI and machine learning and how quickly it's evolving. Uh, you know, Sirdar, one of the things you had mentioned earlier is this, this conversation around ethics and AI mm-hmm. and machine learning. And, you know, that that's, that's not often something you hear when you're talking about software development and developers. You know, that's, that's really new. Where is that coming from? And, and, you know, what's the idea behind that? I think this is something that has been dormant for quite some time and is finally only now coming out into the open because we simply have no choice but to confront it. For a long time, computing was off in the margins, or at the very least, it was, it was confined into areas where ethical questions didn't really present themselves, but they still existed. Um, one of my favorite computer publications of all time was a mag called Creative Computing that was published from the, through the 70s and 80s, and it was run by a guy who was originally interested in the applications of computing to educational resources. And one of the very first articles they published was about computer crime in 1973, 74, <laughs> something like that. Wow, talk the, about the ahead of the curve, t- yeah. Yeah, the article was titled, Is Breaking into a Time-Sharing System a Crime? And so, you know, these questions have always been burbling away beneath the surface. It's just that it's been so easy to ignore them for so long because the default assumption is that this stuff is, a, is an inherent good, that if it connects people, it's a good thing, that if it, if it gets them, if it makes their lives easier, it's a good thing. But until we realize that the ethical questions are always present and that they, they can't be ignored, um, they're not going to go away by themselves. And so the fact that we're now confronting them as openly as we are now is good because we haven't done it for decades, certainly not in this form and not in the form of, in, uh, of inspiring the people who actually write the software and the people who actually build things from the software to also 
think twice about what they're doing, to have some sense of, of ethical consciousness. Has there? I, I'm curious, has there been any kind of uh, um, unified reaction or um, answer to the questions about, I mean, basically are developers embracing this conversation and actively trying to, you know, figure out, you know, ethical guidelines or, you know, what they can be doing, should be doing. Is it, is it a conversation among developers or is it coming from like, you know, is it, is there some sort of top down part to this too? Or is it just the whole community? It isn't, it isn't really coming from any one particular place. There are individual voices that are speaking out and there are, there are individual organizations that are taking a stand. Like for instance, Mozilla, who we're most familiar with uh, for their browser generally take a lot of stands on the individual's digital rights and and respecting their freedoms. And they they recently put together um, an, uh, a machine learning based uh, project called Deep Speech, which is a, a speech to text engine. It's free and open source, and it can be used in pretty much any context you want. And one of the things that they made clear when they were putting this together is how they got the data to create the engine. And they made it very clear that they got the data from these particular public data sets, that it wasn't harvested Google style from, you know, just whoever happens to be speaking in their microphone at a given time. So I think setting individual examples like this to follow are going to be very helpful. That when you say, this is how we did it. And by the way, these are the ethics that we chose to do, that we chose to apply when we were building this product. Those have a big impact. They have at least, I would say that in time, they would have at least as much impact as say, the way that certain open source licenses inspired people to be equally um, ethical about the way that their software could be put together. Yeah, it is interesting that a lot of it depends on where the data comes in that's being used to program these algorithms. Uh, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Sirdar over at InfoWorld about AI and machine learning and how it's evolving very quickly, both for, uh, you know, in, in terms of how developers are dealing with ethical issues and also uh, how it might be misused. You know, it raises a question, and I, I think you sort of touched on this earlier, in, you know, this is such a powerful technology, and as with all technologies, it can be used for good or ill. And you do, or at least I find myself wondering and worrying, uh, you know, if governments, maybe not the U.S. government, but governments that might have an authoritarian bent or might want to, you know, be much more involved in surveillance of the population, could be, you know, working with. AI and machine learning to to bend it toward ways that are not necessarily good for society as a whole. Do we do you see that as a danger? I think this is already happening. If you look at what's happening in China right now with the with the Uyghur minority and uh, the way that they are using surveillance technology at scale, even if only in a prototypical phase, to try to do exactly what you're talking about. Um, and I mean, one of the things we've been familiar with in China from before is you know their national firewall, where they mm -hmm. they work very hard to keep. Uh, information that could be uh, used against the government out of the country. And so this is just a natural extension of the same authoritarian practice. It's, it's not a question of if, it's always a question of when and at what scale. It doesn't even have to be at a very large scale for it to be dangerous. And I don't even think it can be preemptively prevented. I think the only thing that you can really do is shine as much light on it as you can and give as many examples of why this is not a good thing. Okay, good point. You know, to turn that around, can you think of some examples of areas where, you know, the advances we're seeing can be put toward, uh, you know, societal good or, 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 you know, business processes, anything right. where it might be, it, it's not all doom and gloom, you know, we're not no, all doomed isn't. with this. This is a technology that can also do a lot of amazing things for us. Uh, you know, some thoughts on what might be some positives. The positives that I see generally involve making things that are 
very specific tools to aid in very specific jobs. They're, they're things where basically the machine is riding shotgun with you yeah. and helping you do what you do instead of trying to take over for you or trying to do your thinking for you. One of the things that we're seeing at InfoWorld is a proliferation of software uh, analysis tools that are used by developers. And what they do is they analyze code bases that are available publicly on GitHub and places like that, and then create predictive models from them about how code is written. And so when you're writing your code, it will consult this m machine learning model, compare your code to the code that it knows about, and make uh, proactive suggestions. For instance, if you're start about to start writing code that looks like it repeats a common mistake, it will flag this and say, you're about to make this mistake. And it won't, it won't stop you completely from doing it. You know, you can always override the suggestions that it provides you because sometimes you have to do the bad thing to do the good thing. Yeah, of <laughs> but, course. Yeah, that happens that way. But you at least have this thing riding with you, enhancing your intelligence. I, when, I remember Steve Jobs once said that the computer was like a bicycle for the mind. Not, he, he was very specific about using the, uh, using, the, using the metaphor of a bicycle rather than, say, a car, because a bicycle enhances what you already have. A car just completely replaces what you already have. So this would be... This, this, these kinds of things would be enhancements for things that we are already doing where the machines, uh, the breadth and depth of a machine intelligence would be of the best use rather than, rather than try to solve the biggest possible problems at the biggest possible scale, which almost never works anyway. Right. I would think anything that might be able to ferret out uh, problems and errors in code before it's distributed and put into real world use would be a good thing. And I'm sure welcome by developers. Uh, I should pause and see if we've got any questions from people who may be watching us on uh, uh, watching us live. We do, and one's related to this, actually. Um, the question is, what are the medical challenges that can possibly be solved most accurately with AI in healthcare? Ah, medical challenges. Any, any thoughts Medical on challenges. That? Yeah. Well, the most common thing that I hear about is disease prediction and about, for instance, analyzing uh, body scans and using the data sets collected from those to enhance um, the predictions that are made by, uh, like, for instance, an oncologist. And I always, I always thought that that was a good step in the right direction. You know that there's, if you have the resources of, hundred, effectively a hundred thousand doctors aggregated into a single machine learning set, then every other doctor that comes after them will be able to benefit from from the same learning, rather than just from the training of their immediate peers or, or their or their immediate supervisors. So that's that's one possibility. And again, the danger there is 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 to simply let the machine do all the work. Instead of instead of to have the machine complement what you what you already do, because I don't think there's ever going to be a case where a doctor's natural intuition about something, or a doctor's good common sense or his compassion, are going to be displaced by this. But for the sake of being able to know what one person alone cannot know, because he's only one person, then it becomes really useful. Yeah, that, and that goes back to that bicycle metaphor you used. That you know this becomes an aid that sort of. Uh, enlarges and expands what what an individual might do, whether it's a doctor or, or someone else. Uh, any other questions before I let Sirdar go? Yeah, uh, one comment, <coughs> excuse me, in addition to this, somebody said AI ML, excuse me, <coughs> can be helpful in drug discovery. Drug discovery. Yes, because of the, the sheer size of the of the space involved in the, in the, in the, then the, the way that drug discovery works is that you have to, you have to try and, and guess, so to speak, at which particular molecular combinations will be suitable to treat specific kinds of conditions where the, you know, where the molecules will bind to and the receptors in the body and so forth. And a machine learning model would be a good way 
to take a lot of that data and and shake it out and and determine which one of those would be the most likely uh, the most likely wins. So you know, previously what we would do is we would just do brute force simulation for a lot of this stuff. Things like you know, I remember participating, for instance, in one of the projects that allowed you to do protein folding predictions on your computer. Mm -hmm. You know, at scale, hundreds of thousands of people all running this at once. But if you have one model um, that is far more sophisticated and can cut the search the the search space that's the word I was looking for the search space for this stuff down to you know a tiny fraction of its size that you can then you can you can definitely accelerate drug discovery time. So that's a great, that's a great example. That's too. a great point. That's a good point. Uh, somebody's also asking about uh, chatbots. Why does ML machine learning matter in chatbots? Any thoughts on chatbots? A, uh, a lot of ways that chatbots work, are, they're, they're designed mainly to answer the simplest of questions that might come in from, from a human being. Um, a, lot of, a lot of why they have been deployed at scale has been, has been mainly to relieve the burden on you know the the folks who are doing tech support or who are are doing uh, a troubled uh, a help desk or something like that, and who are bombarded with lots of low level questions that could be very easily answered by a machine learning model. So a lot of it is a lot of it is about saving the human expertise for the really tricky stuff. You know the really basic stuff like how do I do this? Those are things that a machine learning model can figure out fairly quickly the meaning of when they're asked yeah. and deliver a suitable response for. So a lot of it is about you know uh, filtering out all of the low hanging fruit that doesn't really need to be handled by a human being anyway. Yeah, basic basically uh, you know getting rid of the allowing the humans to deal with the stuff that's much more complicated and sort of weeding out the, the you know the very simplistic right. answers. The things that, that human beings are supposed to be there for in the first right, place. Right, exactly. The tough rather, stuff rather than the basics. How do I turn it on? Uh, any other uh, questions or comments? Oh, that just relates to one of this big picture question that somebody asked was how to identify where to use machine learning and AI. So That's a great question. That. Yeah. The, the main things that I've seen are if you want to know where, you always want to look at, um, how do I put this? The problem space that you have does not always lend itself to a machine learning solution across the board. You can't apply machine learning across the board. It's usually best for things where you have lots and lots of data, um, millions of customer records, tons of transactions, and you want to find some significant pattern in that data. And you don't want to do it by having to, to trawl through all of that data manually. You want to, you want to describe an, uh, uh, the, bare, the outlines of a pattern that you're looking for, and you want those patterns to be teased out. But you also have to be careful of how that can also give you um, information that you may not necessarily be looking for. You know, you may be, you may end up with, with a lot of insights into things that are actually not all that useful. So it's better to start by asking yourself, what don't I know? And how could I find that out from what I have? And those kinds of answers are, are usually things that can be derived by taking the data set that you have and applying some kind of machine learning to it. Got it. And would also keep you from going down a lot of cul-de-sacs. They may not, you know, that would not be useful right. in what they're doing. Great. Okay. That's good. Any other, good. any other questions or comments? Uh, there's one here. I don't know if, uh, if Sardar can help with this. It's a little tricky, but um, do you think more research will be put toward inter interpretability? Interoperability or interpret? I think it might be about interpreting. Oh, okay. Interpreting. Like interpreting mm -hmm. languages? Yeah, perhaps. This is actually um, this is actually a, a, a hobby curiosity of mine is, is machine translation of languages, huh. because I've I've followed for a while how they would do it once upon a time and how they do it now. Hmm. Um, it's it's a field of of tremendous 
movement at this point in the sense that people are discovering that there are all of these variations on existing techniques that yield progressively better results. And because it's such a hard problem to begin with, any, any advancement is going to be significant. Once upon a time, the idea was if you wanted to translate from one language to the other, um, you would have to basically make a computer program that simulated the grammar of each language, and you'd have to translate it into some kind of intermediate language. The way that they replaced that with once we had, once we had enough data at scale to solve the problem was just to create giant dictionaries, basically, of each of the languages as they were used in the real world, and then create statistical comparisons of how a sentence in one language would be rendered as a sentence in the other language. And the statistical method turned out to be far more accurate and far more powerful. But there would still be a lot of places where it fell down. Like um, the, the, uh, the context of one sentence would not necessarily carry over to the context of the next sentence. That's one of the more recent innovations, for instance. There was a paper from Google about how they accomplished exactly this and were able to boost the, the uh, intelligibility of their translations by a significant amount because of it. So there's a, there's a lot of work being done here, and it's, 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 it's really fascinating to watch this envelope being pushed in these little but tremendously significant ways. Yeah, amazing. It is amazing how much is being done. That's why we wanted to have you back specifically, yeah. because there is so much going on here. Any other uh, questions or uh, comments? I think we're good. I'll take one more quick look, but I think we're good here. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, you know, Sardar, every time we talk, I feel much smarter after we're done uh, because, you know, <laughs> AI and machine learning uh, is one of these sort of vague things that is hard to get your, your, your hands around or your mind around. Um, but you do a great job of explaining it, not only what's going on, but how it could go wrong and also how it could go right. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. It was a pleasure. Great. Awesome. We'll do this again, obviously, uh, in Absolutely. 2020, probably several times. I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about. I'm sure there will. Listen, thanks, buddy. Um, just a quick reminder that uh, we do stream on uh, YouTube. If you like what you're watching, please subscribe to the channel and or follow the Computer World LinkedIn page because we're streaming live on our Computer World LinkedIn live page. Uh, as a quick uh, programming note, we've got Preston Growler coming back next week on December 10th to answer more Windows 10 questions. There are always lots of questions, and he's got the answers. Uh, in the meantime, I'm Ken Mingus. Thanks for watching. <laughs>